Well, good morning, everyone. It's a joy for me to be with you here this morning, worshiping the Lord. Uh, my name's David. I'm the church planting resident here at Doxa Church. Hard to believe this is a title that I've had for almost three years now. Uh, time really flies when you're having fun, I guess. But this has been a, a sweet and formative season, really, for me and my family as we prepare to plan a church in the metro uh, Boston area. And I want to continue to ask for your prayers, especially over these next few weeks. Uh, Margo and I are scheduled to meet with people in Louisville in a couple weeks, and then in about a month, uh, a group of people in Boston. And we really need the Lord to give us um, just wisdom when it comes to making some, some really big decisions. So please continue to pray for us, as I know many of you are already doing. Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and pray for us this morning, and um, I'm going to pray for our time here, but also some other things that I think deserve our intention in prayer. And while I'm praying, I ask that uh, you all would lift these things in your own way uh, to the Lord. And I, I say this every week that I preach, I want to continue to stress this. My desire is that this couple of minutes wouldn't just be me praying, but it would be all of us praying together. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, you are our strength and our refuge. You are the fortress we run to in times of trouble. You are our protector and you are our provider. You're the one who brings rest, who brings shalom to our weary souls. We know that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways and your thoughts higher than ours. Your plans and your purposes are beyond what we can grasp. Yet, you are near and accessible to us. The way you extend forgiveness and friendship to us in the person of Jesus Christ is astounding. Lord, we confess that we have sinned against you. We confess that we prefer the things of this world over you. We ask together that you would set our hearts on you. Give us a fresh and give us new desires for you and your glory this day. We thank you, Father, that you gave your son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin. And that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We rejoice in the good news of the gospel. Father, our church has much to be thankful for today. We praise and thank you for John Glendening and the recognition by this congregation that he should serve as an elder. We pray that you would protect John and Janet from attacks from the evil one. We pray that you would sustain and encourage John as he continues in pastoring this congregation. Lord, also want to thank you for the wonderful news that we heard in our community group on Wednesday that Spencer and Michaela are pregnant. We pray that you would bless and be with them as they prepare to add a little one to their family. All of us here have things, Lord, that should cause us to praise you 
And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a thankful people, not people who ignore the pain and suffering and injustice of this world, but make us people who can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing in who you are and what you've done. Help us to be people who weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We do want to lift up the people and the churches that have been affected by Hurricane Ian, both in our community and across the southeast. We pray that you would bring restoration and hope to those who have suffered loss from this storm. Mobilize your church to be the hands and feet to those who are suffering. And as the as the wind and the rain barreled down on Friday, I was reminded, Lord, that with a word, you still the seas. You calm the winds. You stop the rain. Your power and your glory are astounding. And we praise you. Fathers, we open our Bibles. I pray that you would give each of us a posture of humility and submission to your word. Teach us and stir our hearts to worship you. We ask that you would help us, as James says, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Convict us where change is needed in our lives. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Strengthen us as a body by the power of your spirit as we sit under your word. God, I pray that you would fix our gaze squarely on the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep my mouth from error in all that I say. We know, Lord, we know that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. And we ask that you would build up your church today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. April 11th, 1945. A 16-year-old Jewish boy named Robert Weissman sits as a prisoner at Dachau concentration camp in southern Germany. The suffering that's being experienced by Weissman and others is unimaginable. Everywhere there are malnourished and tortured prisoners in striped uniforms, many of them without any desire to continue living, continue living. Pain suffering, and death engulf them. And then at 3.50 in the afternoon on April 11th, 1945, Weissman notices, as he recalls, that something seems different. The concentration camp has gone dead silent. No sound of gunfire. No sound of explosions. Something feels different. Weisman pulls himself up and looks over the windowsill of his barrack, and he sees an absolutely shocking sight. A sight he wasn't sure would ever come. American soldiers streaming in to the concentration camp. Weisman looks at one of the other boys in his barrack and in a stunned way says, I think we're free. One of the American soldiers that helped liberate Dachau was a young African-American soldier named Leon Bass. Now, he didn't remember Robert Weissman when he, when he freed him. He didn't remember his face. But years later, Weissman had an opportunity to meet Bass at a speaking engagement in Vancouver, Canada. And when they finally got to meet, Weissman told Bass, you were my liberator, my Messiah. 
Is there any better news for a prisoner of a concentration camp to hear than you're free? After months and months of suffering, liberation. After months and months of torture, rescue. The news of freedom came as a shock to many of the prisoners there. And some of them actually went into shock. They did not know how to respond. They weren't sure how to process all they were seeing and all they were experiencing. What they had been hoping for, even praying for, had finally come. In our passage this morning, we come face to face with some news that is absolutely shocking. Liberating even. And if you can believe it, it's even more shocking even more liberating than a concentration camp prisoner coming to the realization that they're free. Today we're continuing our study in the Gospel of John, and we're looking at the last four verses in what's known as John's prologue, or his introduction. We're sort of easing into the book of John slowly, but in the coming weeks you're going to notice we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. And I actually, I want to encourage you to read all the way through the Gospel of John, over the next week even. You may even find it helpful to listen to the Gospel of John. I think the Bible app uh, lets you do that. I use the the Dwell app to just have Scripture uh, be read to me. Uh, Even if you're already pretty familiar with the Gospel of John, pick it up and read it, or pick up your phone and listen to it this week. And you might even find it beneficial to go through John in just one or two sittings. It's good to read slowly and thoughtfully through a book of the Bible, but sometimes you see and you pick up on things by reading a larger chunk of Scripture. In some ways, it's like watching a movie all at once, a two-hour movie, versus watching 12, 10-minute sections. It's easier to get into the flow of the movie if you watch it all at once. So again, Consider, consider going through the entire Gospel of John this week, and I would encourage you, do it in one or two sittings. And then each Sunday, we'll come and we're going to look at smaller sections of John's Gospel together. I think you're going to find the combination of those two things helpful as we sort of mine for gold together on Sunday mornings in God's Word. Well, you'll notice today in our passage that John is picking up on language that we first encountered two weeks ago when we began this book. The book of John begins with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, many of us understand, and it's been clearly preached over the past two weeks, that the word is Jesus. But John, he doesn't explicitly make that connection until the passage that we're looking at today. Look with me again at verse 14. John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now this is an absolutely shocking statement. You can still almost hear the audible gasp of readers from the first readers of John as they read this. John, you're you're telling us that the Word of God, the divine Logos, became flesh? Are you sure about this? And John says, that's exactly what I'm saying. And moreover, 
I've seen him with my own eyes. When John says, in the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word there means tabernacled. And the imagery that John is giving us is when the glory of God filled the temple in the Old Testament. Sending a quick picture of that in 1 Kings chapter 8, when the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the holy place in the temple, it says, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. You see, in the past, God was present with his people in the tabernacle and, and in the temple. And what John is saying here is that now God's self-disclosure reaches its climax in Jesus. The divine presence of the tabernacle and the temple dwells in Jesus. Now, John has made clear that Jesus is fully God. Friends, but he's also fully human. The word became flesh. I think in general, we, do, we typically do a good job in the church of making sure people understand that Jesus is God. He's a second person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, the Lord Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. We typically get that, or we explain that at least. But I think... We can do a much better job in understanding and thinking about the humanity of Jesus. Fully and truly God and fully and truly human. For the first 400 or so years of the church, there were actually quite a few different groups that challenged the humanity of Jesus. Some said that he only appeared to be human, but he didn't actually take on flesh and blood like you and me. Others said his human and divine nature were sort of combined in a way that he can't really be considered human at all. In our day, the greatest challenge to the person of Jesus is that he can't truly be God. But for a significant amount of, the, amount of time, the challenge was Jesus can't actually be human. Now, let me ask you a question here. And this is actually the opposite side of a question I asked two weeks ago. Here's the question. Why does Jesus have to be human? John is clear on the deity of Jesus. Jesus is God. But why is he equally clear on his humanity? Let's first think about this theologically in terms of our redemption. Here's here's the sentence that I think explains it, hopefully. Jesus had to be truly human because the justice of God requires that the same human nature that is guilty of sin must pay for sin. I'm going to say that again. Jesus had to be truly human because the justice of God requires that the same human nature that is guilty of sin must pay for sin. Jesus is not a proper representation of us if he is not human. And he is in every way like us, brothers and sisters, yet without sin. We, humanity, human beings, we are the ones that are guilty before God. We are the ones, all of us, are the ones who have rebelled and broken his law. We are rebels against a holy God. And because God is just, because he's good, he cannot 
allow that. He cannot allow the crown jewel of his creation, human beings made in his image, to rebel against him without some sort of a punishment or a cost. But because, listen to this, but because God is loving, merciful, and gracious, God the Son, the Lord Jesus, took the place of everyone who would receive his sacrifice on the cross on their behalf. Christian, I promise you that the more, the more we begin to understand the significance of our rebellion against God, the greater we will grasp his love for us. Recognizing just how sinful we are at our core shouldn't lead to despair and depression if you're a Christian. It should actually, in a greater way, help you to see the true depth of God's love for you. A love that would lead the word to become flesh and dwell among us. A love that would lead the Son of God to take on human flesh. To be born in a nasty stable with farm animals all around. Don't be fooled by the cute, nice little manger scenes that you see at Christmas time. This was not a pleasant place for a baby to be born. And then he, he grew up and lived largely in obscurity for 30 years in an out-of-the-way town called Nazareth. Imagine the Son of God cleaning up after farm animals, helping his parents around the house with different chores, experiencing all the joys of puberty. Jesus experienced all of that. And then when his actual ministry begins, his family thinks there's something wrong with him. The religious leaders want to kill him. A good portion of his followers end up abandoning him. And then, just when you think Jesus can't humble himself anymore, Jesus humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, when we, when we recognize the significance and the stunning reality that the word became flesh, our love for him will only grow deeper and deeper. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and me, he likewise, Jesus, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus the Word took on flesh. And in doing so, through his death and resurrection, offers deliverance from sin and death to all who trust in him. Friends, this indeed is shocking and liberating news. If you're not a Christian, I want you to know that new life, true life is found in Jesus Christ. The epitome of what it means to be human is seen in the life of Jesus. And if you're interested in learning more about what it means to truly turn from your sin, trust in Christ, receive him as Lord and Savior, to, to become a child of God as we saw last week, if you're interested in that, 
don't leave here today without talking to someone. Grab me, grab someone else, ask them, what does, what does all this mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus and turn from my sin, trust in Christ? Some, somebody help me. I promise you, there are many people in this room who would love to talk with you about that. And it would be my joy to talk with you more about this before you leave. Well, you know, on a, a really practical level, most theologically, let's, let's think, and that informs the practicality, but let's think practically here. You know what Jesus' humanity means? You know what it means? It means that he understands us. He gets what it's like to be a human being living in the world. I've seen commercials recently. I think it's for a ministry of some kind. And don't take this as an endorsement. I haven't looked into the ministry. I don't know what they, they stand for. But basically at the end of the commercial, if I'm remembering right, I think it says he gets us. It's talking about Jesus. It says he gets us. And that is certainly true. Jesus gets us. He knows what it's like to face temptation. Does anyone here face temptation? Jesus knows what it's like. Book of Hebrews again, chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us in with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christian, what temptations are you facing today? The Lord understands, and he is with you in your temptation. He will not allow you to be tempted more than you can bear and will always provide an escape. Jesus also, he knows what it's like to suffer. Is anybody suffering here today? Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He suffered immense physical pain during his crucifixion. He was whipped so bad the veins and arteries were exposed on his back. Nails were driven through his hands and his feet. Jesus underwent excruciating physical pain. He knows what it's like to suffer. And he knows what, he also knows how to endure emotional suffering. Jesus was betrayed by a friend. He was abandoned by some of his closest friends. Jesus has felt the depth of loneliness. He's been hungry. He's been thirsty. He's been tired, stressed out, anxious. He's experienced all that we do. Why am I emphasizing this to you this morning? Because when you are experiencing, when we are experiencing all of these things that I just mentioned, we need to turn to Jesus. When you're lonely, don't jump on social media looking for validation. Don't shoot off a text to someone fishing for a compliment. Remember that you are more loved and accepted by Christ than you can ever Imagine. Remember that you belong to a people, the church, that goes, it goes back 2,000 years. You belong to that. We belong to that. And, and God surrounds us now with people in the local church. When you're in physical pain and tears are streaming down your cheeks and you're hurting, seek comfort in Jesus. Cry out to him in prayer. Turn to him. 
He doesn't always relieve our pain. He doesn't always do that. But he never, hear this, he never leaves us alone in it. He never leaves us alone in our pain. He's with us in our suffering. Church, Jesus gets us. And his humanity is a demonstration that he gets us. John goes on to say, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now let me, let me stop here for a moment and point something out to you that we are going to see over and over in the book of John. And then I want to give you an example of it. So the book of John is steeped in the Old Testament. It's not always a direct quotation, so it can be easy to miss what John is getting at. But the Old, Old Testament imagery and references are all throughout the book. So verse 14 in our passage is almost certainly a reference back to Exodus 33 and 34. And by the way, when you're able to see, I'm going to point this out, but when you're able to see these sort of connections in Scripture, it makes reading the Bible a much deeper and richer experience. Anyway, Exodus 33, some of you might be familiar with this passage or, or even know where I'm going, but Moses is talking with God. Remember that interaction that Moses has with God? And in verse 18 of chapter 33 in Exodus, Moses says to God, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. So here, when John writes, we have seen his glory, he's almost certainly thinking of this interaction between God and Moses. And then you'll remember that God passes by Moses. He hides him in the cleft of the rock as he passes by, and he only allows Moses to see his back. And if you're, again, if you're not familiar with that story, go read Exodus 33 and read 34 as well. Um, see this interaction between Moses and God. And it's actually going to help you see even a greater depth and significance to what John is telling us here. You see, while Moses experienced a degree of God's revelation, saw his back, he experienced a degree of God's revelation, Jesus reveals the Father in an unprecedented way. Jesus reveals the glory of the Father in a way previously unseen. In fact, the entire ministry of Jesus is no more than a manifestation of God's glory. The miracles, the healings, the, the raising of dead people back to life, this is Jesus displaying the glory of the Father. Jesus even tells us that flat out in John 17, verse 6. Towards the end of his earthly ministry, um, sort of um, high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying and he says, I have, he's praying to the Lord, obviously. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. It's the point of Jesus's ministry to manifest the glory of God. God himself is invisible, but he makes his presence and his glory known through visible acts. And we see this certainly in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, our church experiences this every week through the word and through the table. When we hear God's word preached, when we take communion together, when we sing, when we pray, God communicates his presence to us through the Holy Spirit. 
And as people who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we are conduits of the presence and glory of God when we minister to and serve people in our community. Were you aware of that? You are a conduit of God's presence by the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And if you weren't aware, the name of our church, Doxa, means glory. A fuller definition of of the word doxa means glory or majesty or fame. We want to be a church where the, the glory, the fame of God is on full display. Each and every week when we're here, each and every week in our community groups, in our workplaces, our homes, we want the glory of God to be on display with the way we live our lives together and individually. And that's why we place such a strong emphasis on prayer and crying out that God would make his presence known. That has been our prayer for months and months and months. Randy just stressed that a couple weeks ago when we went through our our series on vision. We want to be a place where God's presence dwells. Jesus reveals the glory of God. And get this, he reveals the glory of God in terms of grace and love in his actions. So grace and love are revealed in the actions of Jesus. And Jesus reveals the truth of God in his words. Church, we, as the body, we must pray that God will allow us to do the exact same thing. Really, it's the combination of grace and truth that I think make Christianity most compelling. Grace without truth is under, it's underwhelming. And at the end of the day, it's really not very convincing. Truth without grace, it feels heavy-handed, maybe even a little domineering. The glory of God made known in the ministry of Jesus is the perfect demonstration. It's full of both grace and truth. You'll also, you'll notice in our passage that John uses the word grace Three times. He describes the glory of God as full of grace and truth in verse 14. And then in verse 16, he says, For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. And it's interesting, we actually will not see the word grace anymore in John's gospel. So we need to take a minute on this. What exactly is grace? When when John says, we have all received grace upon grace, what is he talking about? Well, first, let's give a little definition of grace. And I think the easiest definition for us to remember is grace is unmerited favor. Grace is unmerited favor that we have received from God. It's unmerited, meaning there is nothing we can do to earn it favor. Nothing we can do to earn it. Um, and I love, I love the way Leon Morris, who's a theologian, I love the way he describes this verse. It almost takes it, the, the understanding of grace upon grace to an even deeper level. He says, grace upon grace is an ever-deepening experience of the presence and blessing of God. Our salvation is all by the grace of God. Our faith is a gift that he gives to us. We saw that last week. God is the one who gives the right to become children of God. 
But Christian, grace doesn't stop at our salvation. Our sanctification, our, our growth in Christian, maturity, in Christian maturity is all by the grace of God as well. Now, we take real steps and, and make real effort when it comes to our Christian maturity. We show up for worship on Sunday mornings. We seek the Lord in, in our personal devotions. We turn away from sin and temptation. But the moment that we think that we are the ones responsible for our maturity, we've lost sight of grace. Now, can grace be abused? Sure it can. Sure it can. Jude warns against that in his letter when he refers to people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude warns against that. Paul does the same thing in Romans 6, 1 and 2 when he says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. The concept of grace in the Bible can certainly be abused. But I think most Christians actually fall off the horse on the other side. They're afraid that if grace upon grace becomes their reality, then they will fall into sin upon sin. In actuality, Jesus cannot be glorified in our lives apart from the grace that he provides. Leaning to and relying on the grace of God is what powers us in our lives as Christians. 1 Corinthians 15.10. Just listen to the Apostle Paul here. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Oftentimes when we're struggling with sin as Christians, the last thing we really want to think about is the grace of God. Of God. It seems like the experience of many of us is to run in the opposite direction of God's grace when we're struggling and falling into sin and temptation. And literally, that God's grace is the first place we should go to. We, with confidence, can draw near to the throne of grace, brothers and sisters. If sin is wrecking your relationship with Jesus, take practical steps to deal with your sin, yes. Do that. But first, I would encourage you to dwell on the grace of God. Remember that in Christ, the unmerited favor of God rests upon you. In Christ, we have received the spirit of adoptions, adoption as sons and daughters of God. And by his spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Through Christ, we receive the right to be children of God. And instead of turning away from him when we're struggling with sin, let's run towards him, remembering that he also is running towards us. John closes his brilliant introduction to his gospel with verse 18. Here's what it says. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, it's Jesus, has made him known. And really, this verse is restating much of what we've already talked about this morning and really what John has been talking about for the previous 17 verses. But there is an, a very interesting picture that John leaves us with right at the end 
of his introduction. The phrase there where it says, who is at the father's side, that literally means in the bosom of the father. In the bosom of the father. So hold that thought. Turn, if you have your Bibles open, I'm going to read it if you don't, but turn to John 13, 23. Turn to John 13, 23. This is towards the end of Jesus' ministry in a section of John that we'll eventually get to that's known as the Upper Room Discourse. Give you just another second to turn there. I want you to see this. This is, I think this is pretty cool. Look at verse 23. One of the disciples... Whom Jesus loved, this is John here. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. I already mentioned that disciple who Jesus loved was John who's writing this gospel. And the phrase at Jesus' side, you know what it means? In the bosom of Jesus. So here's the point. This is where it comes together. Jesus, from the bosom of the Father, reveals the Father. And John, from the bosom of Jesus, reveals to us Jesus. So we continue in this book, we're going to look at a lot of stories and signs and miracles. And the person of Jesus is just going to continue to be revealed to us more and more and more. That's our prayer that we're praying each and every week as we work through the Gospel of John, that you would, you would see, you would behold Jesus that that would stir your heart to worship. You know, all the gospel accounts, all of them contain some sort of a Christmas story. They all do. John's just looks a little bit different. And in a lot of ways, it's actually more shocking. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, each week, we as a church... We have the opportunity to celebrate all the Lord Jesus has done when we take communion together. And this meal isn't just a time for reflection. It's also a time for us, for Christians, to rejoice. And believers in Christ have been doing this since the beginning. I want to, to sort of intro communion, I want to read for you an excerpt from the Westminster Confession of 1646. A couple of the words are a little old school, but you're going to be able to track with it. I think this is a beautiful picture of what's happening here. This is what it says. Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood, called the Lord's Supper or communion, to be observed in his church until the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death and sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. Christians, come this morning and be nourished through faith and by the presence of the Holy Spirit with us as you receive the bread and the juice, the body and the blood. If you're a professing believer in Jesus Christ, this is open to you this morning. Uh, if If you're not a Christian, we are sincerely glad that you're here with us. I, 
I mean that. I don't just say that to make you feel welcome. We are sincerely glad that you are here. But we would ask that you refrain from making your way forward when you notice others sort of walking to the front. This meal is not for you today, but it could be. It could be. Instead, I invite you to use this time just to reflect on what you've heard. And again, if you have questions, please ask them of me or anyone else before you leave. As always, communion will be served at two stations here at the front. The band will come up and lead. And as you feel led, come up, receive the body and the blood, make your way back to your seat. And then I will come up and lead us as we take the elements together. Let me pray and we will continue in worship. Father, the fact that your son would become flesh, would condescend to a human body, is shocking. But it's also unbelievably, incredibly good news. Father, we praise you. We praise you that your son took on flesh for us and for your glory. God, I pray that the reality of that would cause us to worship on a deeper level, that this wouldn't be something that we just think about at Christmas, but when we think about the person of Jesus, we would think about both his deity and his humanity. Jesus, we thank you that you get us, you understand us. And we thank you that by the the presence of the Holy Spirit, you are with us. Father, I pray that triune God continue to be with us as we worship. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.